today's question has, at times in my life, been my question. And I think that as much as I talk to folks and get to do life with people, I think that today's question has probably been a lot of your question at some point in your life. I think that there are those here this morning that maybe you've never asked this question, but because of some things that await for you in the future that you're unaware of, you may find yourself at some point in the future asking this question. I think that today's question is a question that pastors ask often, but they're afraid to admit it. I think that there are seasoned followers of Jesus, people who've been in the faith for a long time, who wrestle with this question, but they're afraid to admit it. I think that everybody at some point in their life will be able to connect with this question in some way. So here's the question. Why are there so many miracles in the Bible and so few today? You ever thought about that? You know, you hear sermon after sermon, sermon after sermon, 52 Sundays a year. Some of you, you grew up with sermons on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday, and it seemed like everything was a miracle. You know, you would just hear miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, but then you looked around, and it was like you didn't see so many miracles. If you saw any miracles, why are there so many miracles in the Bible and so few today? Because the implication is I look around, and we look around, and, it, I, you know, I... It, yeah, they call it a miracle, but really, is that a miracle? It doesn't look like a miracle. It doesn't, doesn't sound like a miracle. Does God still do miracles today? Or was that a thing once upon a time, and now we're in a different part of the book, and now we're in a different chapter, and that chapter ended, and a new chapter started, and, you know, that was a dispensation, whatever a dispensation is, and now we're in a new one, and it's not the same as it used to be. Does, does God even, does he do that anymore? Because, you know, my experience says, I'm not so sure. Does God still do miracles today? And if he does, how can I receive a miracle from God? If God is still doing miracles, then is there a way for me to receive it? I may need one, so how do I receive it when and if I need a miracle? Now, I think that this is a question that perhaps you've asked. This is a question I have wrestled with on and off at different points in my faith. From the time of a teenager, even into adulthood, I, I still, my mind still wrestles with this question. Still today, in certain seasons, I wrestle with this idea of, hey, I read about this, but I experience this. I, I read about, hey, this person and that person, and boy, that was incredible, that was miraculous, but I, I look around and I'm like, you know, I, I, I just kind of see life. I, I kind of see what's expected, and it's, I can almost predict what's going to happen. 99% of the time, and does that mean anything, and does that matter? Is that a lesson to be learned, or is that something I shouldn't just pay attention to? You know, we wrestle with this in lots of different ways. Uh, when it comes to miracles, it's interesting because believers and non-believers, uh, they disagree on miracles, uh, and, and that doesn't happen a lot when believers and non-believers agree about something. But there are non-believers who say that the universe is governed by natural law. So if you're a science person, you know, you say, hey, uh, I believe that the universe is controlled by natural laws, laws of biology, chemistry, and physics. And, and because of that, because we live in a universe that's governed by natural laws, it excludes the possibility of miracles because natural law governs the day. Natural law governs everything that we know. So it excludes the possibilities of miracles. There's some 
some non-believers who believe that. Now, uh, George Bernard Shaw, a lot of people love to quote him, but they don't know that much about him. George Bernard Shaw, he was curious about miracles, very skeptical of miracles, so he went to Lord's France. And that was where people were having visions of the Virgin Mary, and there was a spring there. And they began to believe that the spring water could heal people. And now Lourdes, France is the second biggest city for tourism in all of France. It's the second most popular city to visit in France behind Paris. So he went there. He went to those springs where people claim to go and get healed and where they have visions of the Virgin Mary and of Jesus and all of that. And when he went there, he observed this. He said, you know, I went there and I saw crutches abandoned. I saw empty wheelchairs, but I never saw a glass eye, a wooden leg, or a toupee. <laughs> and what he was saying was, why does it seem like it's always one genre of miracle? Why is it never like the, the, the real miracle? Why, why, why didn't somebody pull out a glass eye and boom, there was an eye? Why didn't somebody who lacked a leg all of a sudden have a leg? Why was it, hey, they rolled up in a wheelchair, now the wheelchair isn't there, but why, why is it that it seems like on Christ, Christian television, and why does it seem on Christian radio, and why does it hear, you know, the, the stories that we hear told among Christians and churches and faith communities and families? Why does it always seem to be one genre of miracle? Why is it not all genres of miracles, and, and why do we not see it plastered? certified here and certified there and, and why is it the focus where people say hey let's tell you about this and we've got a whole lot of experts that are going to line up to say okay here's the deal why is that so there's some non-believers who say hey you know absolutely not it's impossible there are some non-believers who say yeah we're open to the possibility of miracles by some you know unspecified you know unknown higher power there are some Christians, maybe you were raised this way, there are some Christians who believe that signs and wonders and miracles that it ended with the apostles. That when the apostles died off, signs, miracles, and wonders, they died off. And once the canon of Scripture, the New Testament, once it was locked in place, that we no longer live in an age where signs, miracles, and wonders happen like they did during the age of the apostles. Then there are some Christians down further on the spectrum who would say, yay, we believe in miracles, we believe they're possible. We believe they're possible. We believe miracles are possible. Maybe, that, maybe that's you. That would be your confession. I believe miracles are possible. And then you go a little bit further down the spectrum, and there's a group of Christians who would say, no, we believe that miracles are probable. We, we believe that if you have enough faith, if you pray the right prayer, if you take authority, if you name it, if you claim it, if you call it and you receive it, then not only is a miracle possible, but then a miracle becomes probable. So I don't know where you fit in on the spectrum, but I guarantee you on some level, if you're a thinking Christian, and that's assuming that you think as a Christian, not all Christians think, but if you think as a Christian, I think that at some point in time, you will wrestle with this question. Now, most of what you believe about miracles was shaped as a child and in the tradition you were raised in, if you were raised in a Christian tradition or a Christian denomination. You know, that, that's why you believe a lot of what you believe because you were just taught it and told it once upon a time. And, and it's not really become a conviction for you. It's just a borrowed assumption or a borrowed belief. But this is a question, there, there's a lot of emotion behind this. There's a lot of emotion attached to this question. There's a lot of real world implications as it relates to this question like this. How should we pray for the sick? How should we pray for the sick? Do you, do you pray for the sick to be healed? Some of you do. Some of you pray for the doctors and for the medicine to work. 
So some of us, you know, once upon a time I got rebuked by a person. They meant well and they weren't being mean. Maybe a smart aleck, but they weren't being mean. And, and, and I prayed for someone. I prayed for someone who was sick. And, and I prayed that, you know, God would, God would touch them. And I prayed for the doctors. And I prayed for all the medicine that they were on. And I prayed all that would work. And, and then I said, God, if, it, if it's your will, I pray that this person get better. And after we walked away, that person said, well, that was a useless prayer. And I was like, a useless prayer? Why was that a useless prayer? It was like, you copped out. How did I cop out? Well, you said, if it's God's will, let them be healed. I he said, you might as well just say, hey, you don't think they're going to get better. So you're covering your tail by saying, if it's God's will. I thought, really? How do we pray for the sick? Do we, do we pray for people to experience a miracle? Do we pray for healing? Do we pray for the doctors? Do you pray for the medicine? How do you do that? What happens in your family? Someone has a scan and, and they say, hey, it could be cancer. What are you going to pray for? Are you going to pray the scan to be wrong? Do you pray for God to, to erase the scan? Do you pray that when they go back that it was wrong to begin with? Or are you praying for God to do something specific? What, what, what do you pray for when you pray for the sick? How do we pray for people caught in addiction? How do you pray for people who are in an impossible situation? How do you pray in a lot of what you think about miracles? This, this question helps us determine how we should or maybe how we already think about sickness, how we should think about suffering, whether is suffering optional or is suffering just a normal course of life that you can't avoid. And so I say that thoughtful Christians will wrestle with this at some point in time because we say we believe in miracles, but, but it seems as though some of us can go an entire lifetime and not see one. So how do we continue to believe in something that we've never seen or we've never experienced and we don't even know anybody who's experienced a certifiable miracle? So here's my question to you. Should we pray for miracles? And if so, should we pray and expect a miracle? Or should we pray for a miracle and not get our hopes up? Or is what is going to be no matter what? What will be, will be, and there's nothing you or I can change about it. Because I think there's a lot of real life in this question. And I think if we all got authentic and transparent, we would say, you know what, I wrestle with that. And when I think about that, it makes me uncomfortable, so I just don't think about that. So here's, here's a place where we ought to start. What is a miracle? Well, that's a, that's a good thing to start with. A miracle is not a coincidence. A, a miracle is not just chance that has happened. It's not a psychosomatic event where it's mind over matter. A miracle is not you going to the doctor and getting treated for something and getting better. That's not a miracle in terms of a biblical miracle. It's not. Now, oftentimes we've heard people try to attach the word miracle to things that are not technically a miracle, and therein is part of our problem. So what is a miracle? Well, Richard Pertle says that a miracle is a temporary exception. It's temporary to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose that God has acted in history. Dr. Anthony Flew, a cosmologist, he says that a miracle is something which would have never happened had nature, as it were, been left to its own devices. It's an exception to the natural course of things. It is an exception to natural law. It's an exception to that. He says natural laws describe naturally caused regularities. That's science, naturally caused regularities. A miracle is a supernaturally caused singularity. Now, not every singularity is a miracle, but every miracle has to be a singularity because it's an exception to a natural flow of things. So there are things that just happen, but a miracle is an exception 
to the natural course of things. Here's something I found very interesting. Two out of five Americans claim to have experienced a miracle. Two out of five, that's 90 million people. 90 million people in this country say, hey, we've experienced a miracle. That, I'm not two of the five. Maybe you are. I'm not. Many of us aren't. Some of us may well be. Now, this is interesting, and I'm not making a point. I'm just telling you what, what, the, what the poll says and what the information say, that the more educated a person becomes, the less likely they are to believe in miracles. But interestingly enough, 75% of doctors, when polled, said, we believe in miracles. Six out of 10 pray for their patients individually because of what they believe about miracles. So if you're a Christian and you're here, and maybe you're not a Christian, and this is just going to be something you listen into, but I've got something to say to you in just a little bit. But for those of you who are Christian and you feel like the Bible's just full of miracles, I wonder if you really know how many miracles are in the Bible. Because the idea is we hear sermons and we hear songs and, and we're confronted with the miraculous and we're confronted with the supernatural. And just because it's supernatural doesn't mean it's miraculous. But, but we're confronted with the idea of miracle all the time within the context of a Christian faith community. But here's the thing. They've, they've counted, you know, really smart people. They've counted the number of miracles in the Bible. And, and there's some disagreement, you know, some odds and ends here and there. But somewhere between 150 and 160 miracles are recorded from Genesis to the end of the New Testament. So here, here's, what, here's what you need to think about. So if there's 150 and 160 miracles you know, recorded from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and you divide the number of years to which the Bible spans, it comes out to be a miracle was performed about once every 40 years. Once every 40 years. Well, that doesn't feel as miraculous as what we read or how we heard it. Once every 35 to 40 years, depending on which math you go with, once every 35 to 40 years, there was a miracle that took place. So it wasn't as often as what it feels like sometimes, and it's not as prevalent as sometimes we were under the impression of. So that's just something to think about. So we've defined miracle, but let's talk about what's the purpose of a miracle in, in terms of Scripture, what we find out. And I'm going to give these to you quickly because I don't have time to, to camp out here for very long. In the Scripture, you find that the purpose of a miracle is to display God's power. In Genesis 1-1, we are introduced to the beginning of the universe. Now, if you're a science person, you know that everything that has a beginning has a cause. And even science agrees that once upon a time, the universe had a beginning. So everything that has a beginning and the universe has a beginning, and because the universe has a beginning, it had a cause. So God, we're introduced to in Genesis 1-1, was the uncaused first cause that caused the universe. And so we're introduced to, in the beginning, God created so from the very beginning of Genesis 1-1, we are introduced to a logical argument which opens the door for the possibilities of miracles. From the very beginning, that creation itself, the creator who made creation, Genesis 1-1 opens the door for a logical conclusion that if God exists, and we believe that he does because everything that has a beginning had a cause, but God who did not have a beginning, he is an uncaused first cause, and he caused it all to be. He created something out of nothing, and now there's everything that is. And so God who created this, he from the very beginning opened the door for us to logically believe in the possibilities of miracles. And so that's the first thing. Second thing is that the purpose of miracle in the scripture is to confirm God's messengers. So at points in times, in order for God to confirm a message, he would have to first confirm a messenger. So the people would believe that the person who's speaking to them is actually speaking to them on behalf of God. Case in point, Moses, Exodus chapter 4. 
He says, hey, Moses, if the people don't believe you, throw your staff on the ground and it's going to turn to a snake. Then pick it back up, it's going to turn to a rod again. If they don't believe you, then stick your hand in your coat, pull it out, it's going to look leprous. Then stick it back in and pull it back out, it's going to be good again. He says, you'll be good to go. They'll trust that you have been sent from God because of the miracle, the sign, or the wonder. It, it's, it's Elijah on you know, Mount Carmel. He called down fire from heaven, and everybody said, oh, my goodness. Then God, the God that Elijah preaches about and teaches about, he must be the one true God. So at certain times, in certain places, God will authenticate the messenger so that he can authenticate the message. And he does, though, does so through miracles. The third thing that we find in Scripture is that God does miracles to confirm Jesus' claims. In Acts 2, verse 22, Peter stands up at the day of Pentecost and he says, hey, you people put Jesus to death. You crucified him. Even though God attested to you through signs, wonders, and miracles that he was who he claimed to be. And so the apostles understood that one of the big reasons, if not the biggest reasons, that Jesus performed miracles was so that it would attest to people, confirm to people that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Nicodemus, a scholar, a Pharisee, came to Jesus one night in John chapter 3 and said, Hey, Jesus, we know that you must be a teacher who has come from God. You know why we think you've come from God? Because of the miracles that you perform. Because who else could perform the miracles that you perform unless they have been sent from God? The fourth gospel, John, the biography of Jesus according to John, he writes about seven sign miracles, eight if you count the resurrection. And at the end of his gospel, he says, these things have I written to you so that you might believe because these miracles are signs. They are testimony. They are evidence to lead you in the direction of faith. And so Jesus performed miracles so that people would believe that he was who he claimed to be. The fourth thing is this, to confirm the apostles' claims. Here's what Paul said about the apostles. He said, okay, here's the signs, here's the evidence of being an apostle. You have signs, wonders, and miracles that you're able to perform. That's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 12. He said, the mark of an apostle are signs, miracles, and wonders. That's the mark of an apostle. If you are not an apostle, signs, miracles, and wonders, you know, that's not so much your deal. But he said, the mark of an apostle, signs, miracles, and wonders. Well, why did God allow the apostles to work signs, miracles, and wonders? Because they were going to the world to tell them about Jesus, what Jesus had done and what Jesus had done and what it means for them. So when they would go to new territory and new places and when the church would expand, it would always expand on the hills of signs, miracles, and wonders. Because who would believe someone who shows up to their town randomly and says, let me tell you about a guy who died for your sin, was buried and rose from the dead. People are like, you're crazy. But when you show up to town and you're accompanied with signs, miracles, and wonders, people are like, hmm, let's listen to this for a little bit longer. And so we see this happening throughout the book of Acts. And then the fifth thing that we see in Scripture as it relates to the purpose of miracles is to bring God glory. To bring God glory. And here's what we discover. In both testaments, under both covenants, miracles were always bigger than the people who received the miracle. Miracles were always bigger than the people who seemingly worked the miracle. And so that's what we're going to see today in the story that I want to tell you. And the story that I'm going to tell you today is a story that if you grew up in church, you've certainly heard it. If you didn't grow up in church, you probably have heard it. But if you've never heard it before, hmm, it's a great one. You showed up on a good day. But this is a story where when I tell you the first part of the story, you're going to know the end of the story. And you're going to run to the end of the story. And I'm going to ask you, don't run to the end of the story. Because you need to feel the tension of this story so that we can learn how we should think about miracles. 
how we should pray as it relates to miracles, how we should think about sickness, how we should think about suffering, how we should think about unfortunate circumstances. This story is going to teach us so much if we don't run to the end. So stick with me because there's a lot of tension in this narrative that we need to feel. This is, this is where we pick it up. John chapter 11. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. And see, some of you already ran to the end. Come on back. I told you not to do that. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. Now, because sick is the natural course of things. Let me ask you a question. Allscape, Somerset, Williamsburg here in London. Everybody gets a vote. Some of you never got to vote in church today. Today is your day. Congratulations. How many of you all have ever been sick before? Just raise a hand. Just, just raise a hand. Okay. Some of you obviously didn't understand the question. That's right. Just ask the person beside you what I meant. But... Most every single person, our hand goes up. You know why? Because you've been sick. You've had a sniffle. You've had a sinus infection. You've had the flu. You've had a virus. You had the stomach bug. I, I mean, you, you had something because sickness is what we understand to be the normal course of things. It just happens. Everybody you know, they've had sickness. Now, people have sickness to different severities and, and different degrees and different kinds of sickness. But, but being sick seems to be just the normal course of things. So there was a guy named Lazarus who basically was experiencing life. He was sick. Just like you've been sick. Just like you may be sick right now and maybe just like you will be sick at some point in the future. He was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And so then it says, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So the sisters, they, they got a messenger and said, hey, you need to go find Jesus. Go find Jesus and tell him that the one he loves is sick. You don't even have to mention his name. You don't even have to say it's Lazarus. Because when you tell Jesus that the one he loves is sick, he's going to know it's Lazarus. Because they are tight. They're tight. They're best of friends. They're close. We know that Jesus was close with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha because he would stay at their house when he was near Bethany all the time. So all you got to do is just go tell Jesus that the one that he loves is sick. And when you tell him that, he's going to know, oh, that's Lazarus. Now, here's a question, and you should stop and ask this. Why did the sisters send word to Jesus that their brother was sick? Was it an FYI? Jesus, just so that you know, hey, Jesus, put this on your prayer list. Why did they send word? Because let me tell you why they sent word. They knew Jesus, and they knew that Jesus was a miracle worker. They had seen Jesus perform miracles. Jesus had healed Jewish people. Jesus had healed Gentile people. Jesus had healed sinners. Jesus had healed Romans. Jesus had healed strangers, for crying out loud. So they knew. They were confident that if they could just tell Jesus that the one he loves is sick, if he's going to heal Gentiles, if he's going to heal Romans, if he's going to heal strangers... He's absolutely going to heal the one that he loves. So they were telling Jesus, so Jesus would come and heal their brother. It was a done deal in their mind. It was as good as done. Now again, this is Jesus' good friends. Lazarus is the one that he loves. Lazarus could sing every day, Jesus loves me this I know because yesterday he told me so. I mean, they were close. But we're introduced to something really important in this narrative. That if we don't stop, we'll move right past it. Even people Jesus loves get sick. Even 
people who Jesus loves, they get sick. The normal course of life happens to even those that Jesus loves. And what that means for you and what that means for me is that if we're sick, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that he's displeased with us. It doesn't mean that he's angry with us. It doesn't mean that we're paying for something we did wrong because let me just time out. Let me give you a theology 101. Christians believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all of our sin, past, present, and future. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, there's nothing left for you to pay for. He took the ticket. He took the check. He paid it in full. You ain't paying for nothing. The natural course of events had happened to Lazarus. He was loved by Jesus, yet he was sick. It doesn't mean God's forgotten you. It doesn't mean God's angry. It doesn't mean that God's displeased with you. If the normal course of life is happening to you. So don't confuse your circumstances as evidence to how God may or may not feel about you. And so here's the important lesson we learned. God's love for you doesn't exempt, from, exempt you from what life can throw at you. God's love for you doesn't exempt you from what life can throw at you. What can life throw at you? Sickness, hardship, difficulty, brokenness, betrayal. I mean, you name it. That's what life can throw at you. That is the natural course of events in the world that we live. And God's love for you does not exempt you and it does not exempt me from the things that life can throw at us. And we see this over and over again. We see this in John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Now think about this. John the Baptist was in prison. He was imprisoned by Herod, the king. You know what? When John was in prison, he got confused. His circumstances undermined his faith. He started to doubt that Jesus was who Jesus claimed to be. So John took a couple of his good friends and said, go find Jesus and ask him if he really is the son of God. Go ask him if he really is the Messiah or should I go look for somebody else? That's John the Baptist. And you know why he was so discouraged? Jesus didn't go visit him in prison. What kind of pastor is Jesus? What kind of pastor doesn't go visit somebody when they're in prison? What kind of pastor, what kind of son of God, what kind of Messiah doesn't go see his own cousin who's in jail? Jesus didn't go visit his cousin John when he was in prison. And it undermined John's faith. And, and this is the interesting thing. John said, Go ask him if he's the one or should we look for another? And then when they asked Jesus, Jesus said, okay, let me tell you what to go back and tell John. I mean, really, this is why the scriptures are so helpful when we allow them to be. Jesus said to those two guys, go back and tell John about the blind that are being healed, that they're seeing, that the deaf are hearing, that the dead are coming to life and that the poor are hearing the good news of the gospel. In other words, guys, go tell John about all the miracles that I'm doing for others and not him. Go tell John, even though he wants a miracle, he's not getting one, but go tell him about the people who are getting a miracle so that it will increase his faith. Because in the absence of getting the miracle that he wants, if he hears about what's happening to other people and the miracle they're experiencing, it can perhaps increase his faith. See, we want John to get his own miracle. Jesus said, sometimes you don't get your own miracle. The only miracle you're going to get is somebody else's miracle that you hear about that may strengthen your faith. I don't like that. I don't either. We're going to form a club at the end of this sermon. It's going to be a support group for all of us. And here's the thing to kick. 
Jesus said of John the Baptist, there's no one born of woman any better than John the Baptist. So here's what we learned. It doesn't matter what Jesus thinks about you. It doesn't matter how well he thinks of you or how much he loves you. Sometimes life happens. Whether it's prison, whether it's sickness. It goes on and says, when he had heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it. Everybody say it. No, it. It is the sickness. This sickness will not end in death. No, it. The sickness is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it, which is it, which is the sickness. So according to Jesus, now get this. This sickness has nothing to do with Lazarus. This sickness has nothing to do with Mary or Martha. Jesus said this sickness, this it, is all about the glory of God. So that's not very emotionally satisfying. I know. But here's what's happening. Jesus is letting us see behind the curtain. He's letting us see what no one else can see that's in this narrative. As it's happening in real time, real life, he lets us see what's really happening. He's trying to let the disciples know, hey, this has nothing to do with them, but this has to do with the glory of God. And so the disciples, they're probably thinking to themselves, so Jesus, let me get this right. You're arranging this whole thing. God's arranging this whole thing so that in some way, the glory of God will be revealed through you? That's what I'm saying. You're saying it has nothing to do with them. That's what I'm saying. You're saying you're arranging it because it has something to do with you. That's what I'm saying. You're like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I like how that makes me feel. So then it says again, just for reiteration's sake. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And if he loved them, what would we expect him to do when he heard the news? I'll tell you what we would expect. So he immediately dropped everything that he was doing and quickly headed back to his friends in order to end Lazarus' suffering. See, some of you don't read your Bible, you're like, I'm kind of unclear. Kind of feel like he's suckering us. I am. Because that's not what happened. That's what you would have done. It's probably what I would have done. That's probably what most of us would have done. That's what we would expect of Jesus when he loves someone. The one he loves is sick. Well, of course he's going to drop everything. He's going to get back there as soon as possible and do what only he can do. But the problem is, that's not what Jesus did. Here's what Jesus did. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed. He stayed where he was two more days. He just decided, I'm going to hang out. The one I love sick? Okay, guys, let's just hang out. You know what's frustrating about this when we're honest? If we're just reading it with Sunday school eyes and we're just reading it with church people eyes and we're just reading it because we think we know the end of the story and what it means, let me tell you what's frustrating about it. You and I, we think if we were Jesus, we would have gone and did what Jesus didn't do. Sometimes we want to think that, hey, if I were God, I would do this in the absence of God doing what we think God should do. But here's the thing. When you get on God's side of the coin and you know what God knows and you see what God sees and you hear what God hears and you have that whole omniscience thing, I don't think you would end up doing what God wouldn't do anyway because now you're God. It's easy for you to say on this side of the thing to say, well, if I were God, I would do that, but you're not God. And it's frustrating for us to say, if I were God, I would do that. I would show up. I would answer that prayer. I would, I would, I would. especially when we would and God seems not to. 
So a couple days go by. It says, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. No, no, I don't think the disciples had a nice, warm feeling for Jesus. They were afraid if they threw rocks at Jesus, they would miss and hit them. Why would you go back and put yourself in that situation? Let's, you know, let's don't get crazy. Let's just stay here. Then Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? And they're like, what? Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And I imagine the disciples are just like looking at each other. What question is he answering? And basically what Jesus is saying, he's kind of ignoring what they said, but he's not ignoring what they said. He says, okay, there's a certain amount of daylight, then there's darkness. You can only do in the daylight what you can do in the daylight. And then once the darkness comes, you can't do it anymore. So I'm only going to be with you for a short while. And then when I'm gone, I'm not with you anymore. So while I'm with you, I have a window of opportunity to teach you some things that you need to know that is for your good and for the good of future generations. I'm going to teach you something in the daylight. So that's why we need to go back because it's still daylight. And we need to go back because I'm going to teach you something that's going to serve you the rest of your life. This is after he said this, he went on to tell them, my friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, because, you know, they were all want to be doctors. Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Just let the fever break, man. Come on, let's don't. He's asleep. Let him sleep it off. Jesus, though, had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep because they were dumber than a box of rocks. (laughs) So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. That's one of those moments where your heart sinks and you get that feeling in your stomach and it's, we read it and it doesn't mean that much to us, but, but they knew Lazarus. They knew this family. They were friends as well. This was Jesus's friend and they feel this in their gut. Lazarus is dead. But, but here's the thing. What Jesus says next, if, if, if nothing else I've said so far made you the least bit uncomfortable, then Take a pill or grab a seatbelt because here's something that's really uncomfortable. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, for your sake, I am glad I was not there. What? Jesus, you're glad? You're glad you didn't go back? You're glad you didn't heal him? You're glad you weren't there to save his life? You're, You're glad that he's dead? What? And for our sake? So you're saying that it's not anything to do with Lazarus. It has nothing to do with Mary and Martha, but in some way this is about you and this is about us. How did we get in this? For your sake, so that purposeful statement, you may believe. Jesus, you're saying that you arranged this whole thing so that you could be glorified and in some way that we could have deeper faith. Yep, that's what I'm saying. What? so that you may believe. So let us go to him. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that uncomfortable? He's saying, this, this, this is about you. This, and they're saying, this is about us. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's letting us know what's going on at times when nothing is going on. When God seems to be doing nothing, in this story, Jesus is saying, okay, I want to peel back the curtain to show you what God may be doing when God seems to be doing nothing at all. That there may be a meaning that you can't discern. There may be a purpose that you can have no possibility of knowing about. Now, meanwhile, while all of this is happening with Jesus and his disciples, meanwhile, back in Bethany, Lazarus is dying without medication. 
He's dying without oxygen. He's dying without hospice care. He's dying in all that the first century would throw at a person. Without all the modern medicine advancements that we have in the 21st century. He's dying the way people died in the first century. And there they are, Mary and Martha. They're holding on to his hands. And they're patting him and they said, brother, just hold on. Brother, stay with us. We've told Jesus. We have sent word to Jesus, and I know he's on his way. It's going to be okay. He's going to heal you. We've seen him heal other people. Hey, Lazarus, stay with us. And then he died. And then they did to Lazarus what you do to dead people. You put them in a tomb. Jesus, on his arrival, found that Lazarus had already been dead for four days. Jewish people were superstitious. They believed that the soul hovered above the person for three days. So the fourth day meant that the spirit had departed permanently, never to return again. So Lazarus is dead, 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 dead. The spirit is gone. In their mind, what little superstitious hope may have lingered is gone as well. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed home. Why? Because... She's upset. She's disappointed in Jesus. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, right? I mean, how many of us have felt that way before? If you would have answered my prayer, if you would have done what I would have done, I mean, I've got a heart. Do you not have a, why would you not? Yeah, we understand that. She's raw. She's real. Jesus can handle it when we're raw and real. He can handle our authentic honesty. And she was authentically honest with Jesus. She didn't hold anything back. She said, you could have. You should have. I would have if I were you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. You know, it's kind of, you know, people say things. And we know that there's things you're supposed to say at certain times. And she thinks that that's what he's doing. I know he will rise again in the resurrection in the last days. I can just see Martha. She's all, I know. And she, that's just how I picture her. And she was pretty, pretty, she didn't want to cross Martha. You don't want to meet her in a dark alley. Martha would whip your butt. Martha's tough. She said, I know. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is just not an event. It's a person. It's just not in the future. It's now. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he says to Martha, and perhaps to us. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Martha, despite me not showing up, do you still trust me? Martha, if I set this whole thing up, if I orchestrated this whole thing and it didn't work out the way that you wanted it to, will you still trust me? Even though I could have intervened, but I didn't, Will you still trust me? If this has nothing to do with Lazarus, you, and it has to do with a whole other group of people, are you still going to trust me? Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Then Martha leaves and gets Mary, and then Mary comes back out, and Mary says the same thing and says, hey, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Mary is weeping, and Jesus, he sees her weeping and the people weeping, and then it says that, Jesus wept because he feels our pain. 
And when sometimes it feels like he doesn't care, he cares. And when it feels like he doesn't know, he knows. Then the Jews who saw Jesus wept, weep said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And the answer, of course, is yes, he could have. But he didn't. Could not the one who did miracles for others have stepped in and performed a miraculous healing of Lazarus? Oh, yeah, he could have. But he didn't. Because just because God can doesn't always mean that he will. Just because God doesn't cooperate with you and cooperate with me and just because he doesn't do what I think he should do, that's not a reason to stop trusting him. That's not a reason to stop believing that he exists. That just means that God doesn't always do what I want him to do. And what kind of God would he be if he did what we always wanted him to do? What kind of infinite knowing God would take the advice of finite creatures? What kind of God would that make him? So Jesus said, take away the stone. But Lord, Martha said, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been dead four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? If you will believe, if you'll continue to trust me, if you'll continue to walk by faith, even though you don't have the answers and even though it seems not, it's not working out the way you wanted it to, if you'll continue to trust me, you will see the glory of God in the pain, in the suffering, in the disappointment, in the unanswered prayer. Even there you can see the glory of God. And so Jesus, he walks up to the tomb and he prays. He says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So this is not about Lazarus. This is not about Mary. This is not about Martha, but it's about the glory of God. It's about these disciples who weren't even there, and it's about some other people who decided to attend this funeral. And so sometimes we're learning that things have nothing to do with us, and it has to do with people that we have no concept that it could possibly be for them. This is a look behind the curtain. Then Jesus walks up to the tomb, and here's the end of the story. Many of you knew. He says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus was raised from the dead. And it says, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. So what do we learn? Well, I think we learn that faith does not force God's hand. Faith cannot force God's hand. Doesn't matter how much faith you have, how much faith you claim, you cannot force God's hand by your faith. Mary and Martha had all the faith that a person could have because they had seen the miracles that Jesus had done. Faith can't force God's hand. Faithful living can't force God's hand. God loved Lazarus. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. Sometimes things aren't about us. We love to think they are. We love to think, well, what am I supposed to learn? What's the lesson? 
what's this really about? Good questions, but it may have nothing to do with you. And it may have everything to do with someone else. We learned that the miracle was bigger than Lazarus. Yeah, God performed a miracle. Jesus performed a miracle. He raised a man from the dead. But it was bigger than Lazarus. It was bigger than Mary. It was bigger than Martha. It was bigger than the disciples who believed more that Jesus was who he said he was. It was bigger than those who were there who decided to believe and place their faith in Jesus that he was who he said he was. This was for future generations. This was for wisdom. This was for insight. This is to reveal something about God in the midst of whatever it is that you're in the midst of. And and here's what else we learned. Not every story ends like Lazarus' story. You, You know that's true. Not every story ends like Lazarus. Say, yeah, but so what? He didn't heal him. He raised him from the dead. But not every story ends with a miracle like Lazarus' miracle. Matter of fact, the disciples would not get a miracle like Lazarus' miracle. Peter's going to die. Paul's going to die. They're not going to get raised. They're not going to get, get to raised, you know, get a second shot at it for a little while. Lazarus is going to die. The natural course of things are only going to be temporarily suspended. He's going to die again. Not every story ends like Lazarus' story. Sometimes the miracle workers themselves don't get a miracle. I think we learn this, that if you believe, that if you trust him through it, if you walk by faith, you will see the glory of God. And you will either see the glory of God through a miraculous act of God, which he is so capable of doing, Or you may see the glory of God through the suffering itself. Paul said, the suffering of this present time should not be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Peter said, rejoice in the sufferings that you're in. Knowing that through those sufferings, the glory of God is being revealed. So, what should we do? Trust in God's power, believe that he can. Trust in God's will and know that he may not. Trust in God's grace and know that either way, I'm going to be okay. Keep believing in the power of God's hand. Nothing is impossible for him. Trust in the goodness of God's heart. He is good. He only does good. And in the wisdom of God's plan. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are high above our thoughts. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to believe in miracles. Because at the heart of our faith is a miracle, an empty tomb, a resurrection from the dead. Jesus who was raised to die no more. An empty tomb is testimony to the miracle power of God. If you're not a believer, the question isn't, Do I believe in miracles? The question is, do I believe that there's an empty tomb? And if there's an empty tomb, there's no such thing as impossibility. Father, speak to us. Let your word fall where it needs to fall. Let it accomplish what it needs to accomplish. May our hearts be open and receptive. May our minds be challenged and thoughtful. Let us receive it. Let it create faith. Let it create perseverance. 
Let it give us new perspective and new hope to know that we're never in a situation where there is no hope. The resurrection assures us of that. In Jesus' name.